You know when you hear those songs? Those songs that just speak to you. Those songs that, that make you feel like you can conquer the world. And those songs that connect with you at your lowest points. Music is a powerful influence in our lives, and it has been for years. These are the original Songs of Summer. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Northridge Church. My name's Aaron Hickson. I'm our Henrietta campus pastor. And no matter where you're joining us from, any of our four Rochester area locations or online, we're thrilled that you're with us this weekend. And I, of course, want for my people in Henrietta, we can do a quick chant. Henrietta, Henrietta. Hugo. I hear you guys. I hear you. Nice. Nice. Okay. So we are in a series, Songs of Summer. We're looking through a collection, an anthology of worship songs from the ancient Hebrew people called the Book of Psalms. And we're picking some of our favorites, walking through them over the course of this, over this summer. Um, but before we do that, let me just ask you a question. Do you remember back in the day, maybe in high school or college, when you would get paper assignments from your teacher, from your professor, and there were word count requirements do you remember this? You know, like 750 words on Huckleberry Finn or whatever. You know, we had to do those. Now, there's, there's really two people, in, there's two kinds of people in the world when it comes to those requirements. There are people who see 750 words as the maximum, and there are people who see 750 words as the minimum. The 700, the people see it as the max, they're going to find a way to like magically land the plane at exactly 750 words. If they're feeling gracious, it's like 752, you know, whatever. But there are those who see it as the minimum. They're not out of their introduction, and they're at 750 words. Um, but here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you 10 seconds on a video here in just a moment, and you're going to need to, in the, here's your assignment, turn it to the person on your right and on your left, and you need to tell them which category you're in. Are you a maximum or minimum type person? That's your assignment. You have 10 seconds. Ready, set, go. Okay, okay, those of you still talking, you clearly thought 10 seconds was the minimum. You're still trying to land the plane. In fact, there's a burning sensation in your chest because you haven't been able to clarify all of what you mean to those around you about how you feel about word counts. How do I know that? Because I'm still feeling that and there was no one here, but I was still talking. Um, that I am that person. Those of you who see it as the maximum, you turn to the people next to you, you said one word. You said maximum. In fact, you shortened it. You said max. And that's about how your papers went. I don't know how your grades were, but um, you might not know this, but every communicator who, t who talks here on a Sunday morning, they also have a time limit. We have a restriction. And I actually go over just about every single time. And so I want someone to please mark it down. A day will come when I'm going to preach on a Sunday, and sometime that week I will be fired. And you'll think, why did he get fired? Oh, he went over the timer one too many times. And you will be correct. That's what will have happened. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Kind of. But seriously, some of us have a lot of words. Some of us don't have a lot of words. That's just kind of how we're wired, and that's fine. But I wonder, what is God like when it comes to this? Does God have a lot of words, a few words? Is he extroverted, introverted? I mean, he wrote a book called The Bible. It's pretty long. So maybe he's long-winded. 
Um, but he also stopped writing it like thousands of years ago. So maybe he ran out of words. You know, that could be how it is. Uh, I think it's an interesting question. And no matter how you might answer that question about God, I think it's possible and I would like to suggest that he's saying more than you realize. So let's check out a song that's all about how God talks. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. We're going to be on page 439 if you use one of the Bibles that Northridge provides. But however you access the Bible, I would encourage you and ask you to please join me in Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. I do want to give a disclaimer. This morning, we are going to do some deep dives. We're going to be talking about the way that God talks, but we're going to be using some technical, some theological language to do that. Um, So I just want to warn you. And in fact, I want to start off with one of those terms before we ever even get to Psalm 19. And when we think about God talking, the term that theologians use to reference God talking is is the term revelation. Revelation. How's that for a Bible word, right? Sounds pretty Bible-y. In fact, there's a book of the Bible called Revelation. It's right at the end of the Bible. It's full of crazy stuff about the end of the world. You might have heard of it. Uh, but it's actually not that complicated of a word. The word revelation just means the revealing of something. The revealing of something, that's the definition. When someone says that they've had a revelation, it just means that they came to realize something or something was revealed to them that they didn't previously know. So theologians reference God speaking as a revelation. And they do this because as we hear from God, things about who he is are revealed to us. He becomes more known As he speaks, the curtain is drawn back on who he is, and thus more is revealed of him. So we call God's words revelations. And in this song that we're going to look at, we'll see two different kinds of revelation, two different ways that God speaks. And this song was written by an ancient Israelite king. His name was David. And the, so- the start of the song, we have this little description of its purpose, and you can read that here. It says that it was written for the director of music. In other words, this was meant to be a worship song. So while David does discuss theology in this song, you have to know, this was not written to be a theological research paper. This was meant for song time, not for the classroom. Don't get the wrong idea. It's still full of content that we need to learn and to be taught, but its purpose was to be a song for God's people. And songs really are a brilliant way to teach things because they stick with us, sometimes whether we want them to stick with us or not. For instance, the song Friday has forever ruined a good day of the week because you cannot unhear the song Friday. If you haven't heard it, don't, okay? But the stickiness of songs is one of the reasons that they're a brilliant way to teach. But I think we we need to make sure to understand this. The book of Psalms is not a textbook, but it was meant to teach. It's not a textbook, but it was meant to teach. David is using poetic language to teach truth to the people of Israel, and he's using a memorable format. And I think that is a brilliant plan. This psalm um, is kind of broken down into three sections. So we're going to address each one of them in turn, and we'll learn what we can from them. Uh, let's, let's jump into the first section, Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night, they reveal knowledge. This is a great opener to the song, and I want to break it down a little bit, and we're going to read it again, but this time, we're going to emphasize or, or, or bold words that 
are all about speaking or revelation, okay? Just so we can get our heads around this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Do, Do you see this? David is saying that the sky, the stars, the moon, the sun, all of the celestial bodies, he's saying they are talking to us. He's personifying them. He's giving them the human ability to speak, and he's saying that they are talking to us. What are they talking to us about? They're talking to us about God's glory and about God's accomplishments. Do you see that he's setting the scene for having a song being all about God's revelation? What else is there? The next verse says, day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Again, he's describing various parts of the sky and the heavens. He's saying that they are relentlessly talking all day, all night. They're just vomiting words and revealing knowledge about God. So as he starts off this song, he's painting this picture. All the stuff in the sky is screaming at the top of its lungs all day, all night. It's as if he's saying, look, look, you could grab a telescope and look up at the stars, at the planets, at the sun, and it's going to be looking back down at you with its hands to its face, screaming to you all day about God's glory. That, that's what this, this picture is. And that's really cool, but look what comes next. Verse 3. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Wait, I'm confused, <laughs> right? W- weren't they just talking? H- how do they have no words? How does this work? He's, he's totally contradicting himself here. It gets worse. Look at the next verse, verse 4. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world? Or, then now they're back to talking. <laughs> what is going on here? Well, this is no accident. He's highlighting attention on purpose. The premise so far is that the heavens talk about God, but he's saying they do so with a deafening silence. And the confusion that you feel as we read this is on purpose. What he's doing is poetically teaching us a truth about God's revelation. And what's cool, but also hard, about poetry is that he doesn't take time to spell this all out. Remember, this isn't a research project. He's just making true statements, and it's up to us to think and to discern and to figure out how it all fits together. We're supposed to engage our brains. And that's what great worship songs should do. That's what the songs that we sing here at Northridge, that's what they do. You could take any of the songs that we sing, write out their lyrics, and think them through their profound truths that we're supposed to mine from their depths, not just mindlessly sing. And they don't have to sound profound to be profound, even simple statements from God's word. For instance, another quote from the Psalms, the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. That's a simple statement, but it's full of truth that we could mine. And songs have been written that state that over and over, just like the Psalms do. We ought to be able to mine truth from the songs that we sing. I love that that's true about Northridge. So what can we glean from this about how God talks? All this contradiction about how they have no speech, yet their voice goes into all the world. How do we handle that? Well, because of this tension that we see here and in multiple passages throughout Scripture, theologians have come to talk about God's revelation in two distinct categories. So here's another technical term for you. The first category, this kind of revelation, has been labeled general revelation. General revelation. Now, that doesn't sound very cool. I get that, but it does matter. What the psalmist is saying 
is that as we look at the world around us, it reveals something to us about God, but what it reveals isn't something in the form of words. You aren't told anything factual about God in terms of actual words when you look at the sky. The stars aren't going to like magically arrange themselves into words that like God is real and like we can all see it and believe it, right? Obviously. But when we look at the sky, the moon, those stars, they are implying something really important about God and about our universe. And David, the author, he's not done making this point. He goes on next to make an illustration about this. But remember, it's poetry. So instead of saying something like really direct, like the power and the consistency of our universe indicates that God is supremely powerful and also faithful. Like he doesn't do that. That was supposed to be funny. I was hoping it would be. Um, Instead, he poetically describes the sun, the, like the sun in the sky, as an illustration of something powerful, something faithful. And we, as the audience, the, sing, the people singing the song, we're supposed to connect the dots. That this thing that's made by God is a hint about God and his character. So let's read the next verses. It says, In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Do you see this here? The sun, it's still declaring God's glory through its daily victory lap across the sky. Like a runner who's just radiating the triumph of victory as he crosses the finish line. The sun, we know this, it's so powerful. It's so incredible and majestic and dependable. And its very existence, its qualities in that sense, reveal something. They tell us something about God. Don't read too much into the fact that he's talking about the sun. I mean, he could have written this psalm about the ocean or anything else that's really cool. He just chose the sky from like an endless list of things in our world that would have illustrated this point really well. The point is not what part of creation he's describing. The point is that the world itself, all of it, is telling us something about God. Again, this is general revelation. It has no speech. It has no words. But its voice is heard all over the world. So a definition of general revelation, you could think about it like this. General revelation is God's revelation to all people that he exists by means of the things he has made. God's revelation to all people that he exists by means of the things that he has made. In fact, Paul, a guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament that we have today, he picked up on this theme in a letter that he wrote to a group of Christians who were living in Rome in the first century. And he wrote this. He said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, those things have been clearly seen. How have they been seen? Well, they've been understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. It's almost like he's quoting Psalm 19 here. Do you see what he's saying? God's qualities of power and of his existence, they have been clearly seen from the created things, what has been made. In other words, creation creates a gap. Creation creates a gap. When we look at the world around us, it's supposed to make us kind of scratch our heads a little bit. It's supposed to make us think. It's supposed to make us stand in awe. We're supposed to wonder, like, how did this happen? The elegance and the complexity of the world around us is specifically intended to imply to us that there is something greater in the universe than us. Think about this. How often do you see something like Niagara Falls, for instance, 
and walk away from that experience being like, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm a significant part of our universe, right? No, no one does that, right? You walk away thinking like, I'm, not, I'm insignificant. I'm small, right? And that's how we feel. And let me give you a hint. That's the point. That's why it was made that way. Any thoughtful pe- person who really takes time to observe the world that we live in is forced to at least grapple with the thought, what could possibly do this? Like, who could pull something like this off? And even people who don't believe that God is behind our universe, and I'm not assuming that you do, they talk about the process of evolution and Big Bang cosmology and natural selection. They talk about those things with a sense of like wonder and awe and amazement. Because no matter how you think our world got here, everybody agrees it's ridiculously cool and humbling. So creation, it overwhelms us. It forces us to create a category in our minds for something bigger than the human race because we could not possibly make something magnificent ourselves, and we know that. So it's important to note, remember this, general revelation does not close any gaps. It creates a gap, but it doesn't close the gap. That's the profound truth that the psalmist is hinting at with all this contradictory stuff. God is talking through the world around us, but we can't fully understand him. I mean, you can't look at a plant growing in the ground and say like, wow, God loves me and Jesus died for my sins. Right? That's, that's not possible. It creates a gap. And the gap is ultimately a massive setup for the next part of the song. So let's check it out. Here's the second section of the song. And this time, instead of highlighting words that have to do with Uh, speaking or talking, I'm going to be highlighting different words that have something else in common that's very, very important. Okay, so let's look at these, the next verse, starting at seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord, they're trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Wow, okay, what do we have here? He's totally changed gears, right? All of a sudden, he's gone from talking about the sun to talking about God's commands and decrees and laws. Why? Well, how in the world are these two things connected? Well, the connection between these two sections is that they're both describing God's mouthpiece, God's means of communicating or of revealing himself to us. The sun or creation is God's way of speaking through general revelation, And now the author is introducing the second form of God revealing himself, and that's through what we've come to label it as special revelation. Special revelation. And the key to special revelation is what all of those highlighted words that we just looked at, the key is in what they have in common. Those words were law, statutes, precepts, commands, decrees. What's the connection between all those? Well, these are words that all imply written or verbal communication of content, like communication of actual bits of information. Laws, commands, they're made up of words that communicate ideas or or boundaries or concepts. And that's obviously, that's a super different way of communicating than just implying something through the beauty of creation. And that's why theologians have decided to categorize these as two independent things, two different forms of revelation. And David, the author here, he clearly views God's word, God's law, as something that's very good, as something that's very powerful. I mean, in this list, if you were to look back, he says that God's laws, God's words, he says that they refresh the soul. 
They give wisdom. They give joy. They're right. They last forever. And in all of this, what he's referencing is something in the Old Testament. It would be the first five books of our Bibles today, Genesis through Deuteronomy, called the law. And these books, they're they're a written account of how God had revealed himself to the world up until that point in history. So think about this, okay? General revelation, it created a gap. It's declaring God's glory and telling of his existence, but it doesn't use any words. But God didn't just reveal himself in a vague way in creation. He also got super, super clear and spoke to his people in actual words that they could actually understand. He said things. He revealed himself in no uncertain terms. In fact, I want, I want to give you an example of that um, in, from that section of the Bible, those first five books. And this is a passage that I can guarantee you, 100% promise you, that the author of this psalm, David, he would have had this section of scripture memorized. Zero doubt. And it's a section where God himself is speaking to one of the leaders of the Israelite people whose name was Moses. Um, so in Exodus 34, here's what it says. And he, that's God, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. So this is God. He's about to talk about himself to a leader of Israel. He says this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and in faithfulness. This is God revealing himself in actual understandable words about the nature of who he is and what he's all about. That is special revelation at its finest. A definition of that might be, special revelation is, God's revelation of himself in words through his word. God's revelation of himself in words through his word. He's revealing himself in terms that are factual and understandable. Unlike with general revelation where we're left with a lot of distinct impressions but no definitive facts, with special revelation that gap is closed. If creation creates a gap, then the Bible closes the gap. If creation creates a gap, then the Bible closes the gap. Rather than staring at the world and saying, like, I wonder what could be so amazing. What's behind all this? Special revelation is what allows you to know that the God of the Bible is the one who made the world. And he has a son who is willing to come to this earth and willing to die in your place for the sins that you've committed. And the psalmist is saying here that that revelation, that propositional truth, that is refreshing to the soul. It gives light in the midst of a dark world. I mean, can you see what this song has done so far? It's introduced two very profound truths about how God reveals himself. That general revelation creates a gap through wonder and through mystery, and then special revelation closes that gap with truth and with fact. And yet he's done all of that poetically and simply and beautifully. In this section, though, I think in particular what he's saying is that special revelation is so important. It's so valuable. It tells us the truth about God and the world that we live in, and we can't live without it. In fact, he honestly believed it was literally the most valuable thing in the world. At least that's what he says next. Verse 10, they are, that's God's commands, God's words. They are more precious than gold, than pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. Then honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. If you gave this guy a, a, like a choice between cash money and the Bible, my man is taking the Bible every time. 
Uh, That's definitely not how I view the Bible. Uh, But David wanted God's words more than he wanted money, more than he wanted the best experiences his culture had to offer. He wanted God's words. I think we could probably all use a heavy dose of that perspective. But this song, from the beginning until this moment, it has been all about how God communicates with us. And what we just read, that description of how valuable God's word is, that is like the climax of the song. It's all been building this moment. This is like the part in the song at the bridge where like the drums finally come in and they're like building and building right before like the guitar is about to shred a solo, okay? That's what's happening. This is the, mo- the climax. He's saying, your words, God, to us, they are fantastic. They are glorious. When we look at the world, we know it's screaming of your glory, When we look at your word, the Bible, we find insight and life and wisdom. And we want nothing more than to hear from you from your word. Because there we find out what life is meant to be and we find out who you are. And then this song kind of ends in the final portion. It's almost like he gets overwhelmed by all that he's written to this point. And he just starts a prayer to God, just thanking him for his word, revealing how thankful he is for it, and how much it reveals his own brokenness. And this prayer of response is what comes out. He just admits, like, I need your word, God. I need you to overcome my sin. He says in verse 12, but who can discern their own errors? That kind of hinting, none of us can. So he says, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And then, if you do those things, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And then this psalm, which has been all about God's words, all about how he communicates to us through words, it ends with this thought. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My goodness, what a song. I mean, it sounded so simple and beautiful, but it's dense. It's so packed with truth and content. We're meant to mine all of that from its depths. So how can we apply all this, <laughs> right? I've been up here for a while. You might be wondering, like, what in the world does all this have to do with my life? Random definitions of words I didn't even know existed or cared about. Like, what am I supposed to do? And I'd love to give you some ideas of how we can apply what we read here from the Bible. So first, what I would, I would ask you to do, what I'd recommend that we can learn from this, is to get out in his world. Get out in his world. By this, I mean, take a walk. Watch a sunset. Watch a sunrise. Go to Letsworth or, or Niagara or Watkins Glen. Go to the beach. Watch some waves. Take a nap in the sun, whatever. Float in a pool. And think about how crazy it is that fluids, like, interact with solids. And, like, surface tension that allows bugs to like walk across the surface of the water that's crazy like fish can't breathe outside of water but we can't breathe inside of water like that's that's insane or i mean i don't know find something get a telescope look at some stars if you have the opportunity go hike some peaks in the adirondacks or do some kayaking in the irondequoit bay Go to Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon or the Rockies or the Smokies or the Pacific Ocean or the coast of Maine or Victoria Falls or the Dead Sea. If you're not into that stuff, grab a microscope. Study mitochondria and anaerobic cellular respiration. Walk into your backyard and see what's growing there or not growing there. And then do something about it. I promise you will find plenty that leaves you awestruck about the planet that we live on. 
And then let that awe drive you to be in awe of the God Every star, who, who, that every star is declaring his glory. Let every color in that sunset be a reminder of God's glory and his beauty and his symmetry and his precision. Let every thunderstorm this summer be a reminder of God's incredible and his terrifying power. Get out in God's world. He's talking to you there. I mean, it's no substitute for your Bible, but it is an antidote for your bored and cynical heart. You can't spend long out there without finding something that will blow your mind. So get out in God's world. And then get in God's word. Get in his word. Don't just stop with general revelation. Move beyond that to God's special revelation of himself. In fact, better yet, read God's special revelation in God's general revelation outside somewhere. And as you look around, allows yourself to be captured by the wonder of the fact that the God who made every single thing that you see in the world, he literally knows your name and knows how many hairs are on your head or not on your head and was willing to send his son to the earth that he made in order to take the punishment that you deserved so that you could be part of his family, all while low-key holding the universe together. He's amazing, And his word is full of truths more glorious than any sunset, more beautiful than any scenery. Maybe you've been, like me, you've been doing the Sacred Rhythms reading challenge uh, for the last 60 or so days. We're really just past the 60-day mark. We're getting close to that 66 mark that we set to, you know, build a habit of reading the Bible. And if you've been reading the New Testament challenge like I have, man, that's been a lot to read, right? That's, been, that's taken some effort every day to really read all the New Testament. I just completed that. If you're, on, if you're on track, you should be completing that sometime this week. And I actually want to give you something else to move, when you're done with that, another plan to begin. We'll be sending this week um, another reading plan. It's just 18 days. It's through the book of Psalms, but it's just one psalm a day. Don't worry. Um, just one psalm a day. It'll take us through the end of this series. If you're at all interested in that, check the box in the bottom of your connections card about the Psalms reading plan. Um, It's actually selections from our staff, some of our staff's favorite Psalms. They'll give you a quick blurb about why it's their favorite or what that Psalm has meant to them. And I'd encourage you to do that just for the next 18 days. It'll give you something else to engage with. You know, you're already in the habit of reading the Bible, hopefully, as a result of that Sacred Rhythms Challenge. And why why not transfer your habit to some ancient worship songs together as a church Again, it's just a chapter a day, Uh, don't worry. It's a great way to to engage with the book of Psalms. But I just want to say, however you do it, just do it. Get in his world, get in his word. Who knows? While you're doing that, you might just hear from God. And what you hear might just change your life. Let me pray. God, thank you for speaking to us. We know that you have spoken to us so clearly in the world that you've made. It's so beautiful and just, it's so cool. And we know that it's revealing truth about you. But you've also spoken to us through your word. And the best way that you've revealed yourself is through your son. And I pray that we would today know that anyone who has seen the son has seen the father because the son reveals the father. That our relationship with Jesus is what allows us to know you and to be part of your family. And I pray that as we walk around outside this week or read your word or however we're engaging with the way that you speak, 
that we would come to know you more, not just a bunch of facts, but a knowledge of you that leads to a life that pleases you and that points others to you as well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.